0: Pleasure to welcome you all to today's Region 4 Project ECHO session from the Emory University School of Medicine's Serious Communicable Diseases Program, run in conjunction with the Southern Regional Disaster Response System and the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. My name is Gavin Harris, and I will be your moderator for today. Before we begin, please note that we will be recording this session, and your data, while used for informative purposes, will be kept confidential. For those unfamiliar, ECHO is an acronym standing for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes founded by the University of New Mexico. It's designed to disseminate and amplify best practices in a collaborative and interactive manner. And if you are interested in presenting or participating in future sessions, please submit cases to us. Details will be at the end and on our website. If there are any issues during the webinar, please send us an email or type in the chat. If you would like to ask a question during the session, please type it into the Q and A feature. We will do our best to answer questions in real time, and we'll discuss as many questions live as we are able. If we do not get to all questions in live discussion, we will post a recap addressing those questions on our website when the recording to the session is available as a podcast next week. Now, these sessions are accredited for continuing education credits by the AMA and the ANCC. Credit can be obtained for attendance upon completion of a survey at the end of the session. The presenters and the planners of this session have no conflicts of interest with eligible companies to disclose, though a member of our planning committee committee, and our presenters do receive support from ineligible entities. Now, today's session will focus on the most current COVID vaccination data and experience and will be preceded by our now weekly HHS Region 4 Special Pathogens of Concern Situation Report. Following our presentations, we will have time for moderated open discussion. And now it's my great privilege to introduce our guests for today. Each of them have served as a panelist for our sessions before. First, I would like to welcome back Evan Anderson, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine here at Emory. Dr. Anderson has been a lead investigator for the CDC-funded Immersion Infections Program Surveillance Unit for several respiratory viruses, a principal investigator in the Emory Vaccine and Treatment Evaluation Unit, and has authored nearly 200 publications on respiratory viruses and medical countermeasures. Next, I would like to welcome back Andy Shane, Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, as well as the Marcus Professor of Hospital Epidemiology and Infection Control at the School of Medicine and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Shane has been extensively involved with COVID-19 response, as well as with NEETEC. She's also served as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer, otherwise known as an EIS officer. And lastly, I would like to welcome back John Horton, An assistant professor of medicine in the department of gynecology and obstetrics and the division director for the emory general obstetrics and gynecology division dr horton has been the recipient of many outstanding teaching awards throughout his career and has written several articles relating to the intersection of serious communicable diseases and pregnancy welcome to you all before we begin the main event i wanted to mention several things One is that listeners often ask why do we do these sessions and what is the relevance to real world events? To that end, the Emory University Series Communicable Diseases Program in conjunction with the SRDRS have put together weekly situation reports on special pathogens of concern for our region, Region 4. These sit reps are published on Wednesdays through our social media channels and listservs. And while this session deals with COVID specific response itself, we must not lose sight of the fact that there are other several circulating pathogens today. I would also like to make note that on the 17th of May, here in the United States, we officially surpassed 1 million COVID-19 related deaths, an absolutely unfathomable number, and one we should not soon forget. It is directly related to the session today. And so with that, here's the HHS region four special pathogen SITREP for the week. The monkeypox virus outbreak continues to evolve, With significant spread continuing in endemic West African countries, as of the 24th of May, there are now 156 confirmed cases in 16 countries, 12 of which are non-endemic regions. In those countries, no deaths have been reported to date and no travel links have yet been elucidated. In the U.S., there have been four confirmed cases, one each in regions 1, 2, 9, and 10. And in region 8, there are currently at least two persons under investigation. In Region 4, on the 22nd of May, the Emory University Serious Communicable Diseases Unit, SCDU, was fully activated for a high-risk PUI. That patient was eventually found to have an alternative diagnosis and SCDU was deactivated one day later. Currently, there remains one active PUI in the region and SRDRS and SCDU teams remain on alert. The threat to the general public remains low. This concludes our Special Pathogens of Concern, SITREP, for the 25th of May. All right, before we launch into the main topic at hand, I wanted to first pose some interactive poll questions to our audience. The first one, do you currently recommend your patients to be vaccinated against COVID-19 if they are eligible? If you could please vote for a single choice, yes, no, we recommend if patients bring up the topic or it depends on the patient. And the second question, how comfortable are you in discussing COVID-19 vaccination with your patients? Not at all comfortable, slightly uncomfortable, neither slightly comfortable or very comfortable. If you could please vote now. All right, if we could please see the results on the screen. All right, so the first question, do you currently recommend your patients to be vaccinated? The overwhelming majority of our audience uh, wrote yes. Many also recommend if the patient brings up the topic or it depends on the patient. Excellent. So we'll be able to further elucidate um, issues relating or concerns related to that. And then in terms about how comfortable it seems, we have quite a a wide range, though at this point in the pandemic, um, it seems the majority of people are at least slightly comfortable with discussing this topic. So I think we definitely have some opportunities for learning and hopefully um, we can oblige with this session. Thank you. So with that, let me now turn it over to Dr. Evan Anderson.
1: All right, thank you, Gavin. So thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today and appreciate all the work that, uh, uh, effort that you all do on a day-to-day basis. So where do we stand with COVID-19 vaccination? Here's my list of disclosures, which is extensive, notably served as uh, the PI for multiple uh, vaccines during the COVID pandemic. So we'll talk through pediatric vaccination and then adult COVID-19 vaccination, where do we stand? And we'll handle the pediatric vaccination questions first, and then uh, there'll be a break. And Andy will uh, then discuss uh, some cases, and then we'll switch over to adult COVID-19 vaccination. So uh, I will go ahead and present things in an age de-escalating fashion. So we'll start with the adolescents and move our way downward. And on the left, in general, you'll see Pfizer, uh, and on the right will be Moderna. Um, as you're probably aware, uh, last spring, actually a little bit before this time, uh, there were data that were uh, published, essentially documenting that uh, the Pfizer vaccine uh, is safe and and uh, results in good immune responses, and also has efficacy in adolescents. Uh, that uh, data was subsequently present, published as well for Moderna. For Pfizer now, the boost dose is approved at 12 or older years of age, and we'll talk about the younger kids shortly. Um, and then for uh, Moderna, uh, there, it's become public that uh, essentially the FDA delayed the decision about COVID vaccine authorization to evaluate the myocarditis risk. Or uh, the data for Pfizer, since that has been under EUA, uh, I think several important things stand out. So on the left is data for uh, the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine in terms of prevention of MISC. So multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is among the most serious outcomes. Uh, from COVID infection, you see that it's roughly about 90% effective in terms of preventing MISC. And that's important because that was a concern that potentially vaccine could trigger this, but fortunately it does appear that the vaccine is quite effective in terms of preventing this uh, unusual but very severe outcome post-COVID infection. On the right are data that were published recently from a group of uh, ICU investigators that looks at COVID vaccine effectiveness over the course of time. I think several things stand out here. First is that initially, during the delta predominant period, you see very good efficacy, about 90%, and then really a big drop uh, during the Omicron predominant period, particularly in those 12 to 18 years of age, and uh, those five to 11 for whom they had data uh, was still about 70% effective. Many of these individuals in the 12 to 18-year-old age range may not have uh, had the opportunity to be boosted, and so would be fairly far out from their vaccination. That may well account for the slightly lower efficacy. They then further analyzed the data, and importantly, in these uh, admitted patients, those who had the most severe COVID Still, the vaccine was about 80% effective, whereas those that were admitted for other reasons, primarily, uh, or with less severe COVID, uh, The vaccine was less effective. So again, the vaccine is going to be most effective against the most severe outcomes, uh, less uh, effective against uh, more minor symptoms. One of the big concerns has been that of myocarditis. Uh, over on the left, you see uh, the timing of myocarditis reports, and this is primarily within the first three to four days um, post-vaccination. And as you can see with the lighter blue, it's primarily with the second dose of vaccine administration. On the right here is data from the same paper and looks at the risk per million individuals. And I think several things to highlight here. First is that um, the risk is Significantly higher with the second dose than with the first dose. It's about a tenfold increased risk. That risk is highest in the six to 17 year olds and then is lower as you go up in age and also declines in uh, children less than 16 years of age. Importantly as well is that that risk is much higher in males than in females for reasons that we don't completely understand, but this also correlates with what we see in terms of myocarditis risk in general, where it's highest in the late adolescent, early young adult males. To put this into perspective, your risk of getting struck by lightning per year is about two per million according to CDC. So even at the highest risk range of that 100 per million, that equates to about your 50-year risk of getting struck by lightning. So can it happen? Yes. Does it happen? Yes. Is it measurable? Yes. Is it likely to happen? Absolutely not. Importantly, in data that I haven't shown you, the risk of myocarditis with uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection is actually four to tenfold higher than the risk with vaccination itself. OK, so infection risk is greater than risk with vaccination. Importantly as well, about one in every 350 US um, individuals has died of COVID to date. That equates to about 2,900 per million. So again, much, much higher risk of even mortality associated with uh, COVID-19 than, um, than uh, the risk of myocarditis. So moving then down to children 5 to 11 years of age, um, Uh, Many people have asked why there have been delays, so one of the reasons uh, for this is that that both companies were asked to expand their numbers of children in that 5 to 11-year-old age range in order to uh, detect less frequent adverse events. Data uh, on the left here for Pfizer, on the right are for Moderna and the Moderna data were just published recently. On the left here, uh, I'll I'll highlight a couple of things. First is that actually uh, the placebo rates um, of symptoms are actually much higher in children than in the adult studies. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. Um, And then what I've done is highlighted uh, 10% difference from the adult phase three uh, Pfizer and Moderna studies. And importantly, I think uh, in general, you see less fatigue, less headache, less chills, uh, less muscle pain, and less joint pain in association with uh, the Pfizer vaccine. Um, Really with both doses, uh, you see less symptoms in association with uh, vaccine administration in comparison to what was seen with the adult studies. Granted, it's not exactly comparing apples to apples, but uh, the studies were conducted the same way using the same uh, measurement. For the Moderna uh, vaccine, there is a little more pain in children in comparison to adults at the site of injection, particularly with dose two, but other systemic uh, symptoms such as myalgia and arthralgia actually are lower. Uh, the primary endpoint, from a immunogenicity standpoint, is that of how well do the antibody titers compare uh, between the five to eleven year olds and then the uh, late adolescent young adults? And you can see that the antibody titers for Pfizer and for Moderna are similar to the uh, antibody titers that were observed. Um, in the 18 to or 16 to 18 to 25 year old adults, and so that is the correlate that they're using for uh, licensure, and that's important when we move on to the less than five year olds. Uh, the studies were not powered for efficacy, and I think that's important to emphasize. But even so, they did demonstrate efficacy uh, with the Pfizer vaccine and then also with the Moderna vaccine uh, at a similar. Uh, range in comparison to what was seen for, um, for the adult studies. Importantly, this is primarily with, uh, with Delta circulating. That Pfizer boost dose is now also approved in the 5 to 11-year-olds. Then moved down to the less than 5s, and um, in December, Pfizer announced that they had failed to meet on uh, uh, achieving an adequate immune response in the children, particularly two to uh, four years of age. They actually still saw good immune responses in those less than two years of age, so six months to two years of age, but not in the two to five-year-olds, and this prompted them to then go forward with uh, planning a third dose through the study as part of the primary series. What happened though is that you can see the huge bump in terms of pediatric hospitalizations, particularly in the at-risk age range, zero to four years of age during Omicron. That prompted actually um, uh, Pfizer and BioNTech to initialize the rolling submission of EUA authorization in children less than six months or. Th- from six months of age through four years of age, uh, following the request from the US FDA. So, the US FDA actually kind of went out of their way to request that they submit the data um, for potential licensure. However, as you're uh, well aware, Omicron began to then recede and. Um, Uh, there was a decision made to not go ahead and uh, fully submit that data and have it reviewed. And so this resulted in a significant delay in terms of the uh, FDA application. Um, uh, It's kind of unclear whether it was a Pfizer versus the FDA decision, but... um, uh, Peter Marks, who's the head of the FDA division, uh, said the sudden decision to delay authorization should reassure parents that the FDA is doing due diligence in terms of making sure that the vaccine is safe and effective for kids. So now, if we fast forward to present, um, we'll start here with Moderna, which probably most people are a little more aware of. Uh, so in um, the uh, in April, they announced. Or initially announced in March, but uh, then provide additional information at the end of April. Their uh, two dose efficacy in six months through six years of age. And this is with the 25 microgram dose. They were able to achieve similar immune responses to that of the adults in the COVE study. So meeting the primary objective of the study. They also saw similar uh, efficacy. Um, uh, to some other adult data that exists suggesting about 51% efficacy in the six-month to two-year-olds and then 37% in the two to less than six-year-olds. This is primarily against Omicron, uh, importantly. Pfizer just this week announced data that their third, third dose of uh, COVID vaccine is 80% effective against Omicron. And there's a big caveat to these data in that this is a total of 10 cases. So it's, you know, confidence intervals are very, very wide. And I don't know that this 80% is necessarily going to hold up over the course of time. Most importantly, though, they did achieve an immune response um, that was similar to what was seen in the adults. So this could then result in uh, the vaccine actually being a le- uh, licensed based off of immunobridging. So there's now a VERPAC meeting scheduled. Uh, Moderna's data for the 6 to 17-year-olds will be reviewed on June fourteenth. Then Moderna and Pfizer uh, will be presented on June fifteenth. Moderna with a two-dose, Pfizer with a three-dose primary series. Remember, after that VRBPAC meeting, an FDA decision has to happen, and then the ACIP meets to make a decision uh, resulting in a final CDC decision. What's the effectiveness of these vaccines? Well, the effectiveness of these vaccines here is actually zero. The reason why, as Wald-Orenstein likes to say, it's not vaccines that save lives, it's vaccinations that save lives. The concerning thing uh, has been really uh, vaccine hesitancy. And this is a poll uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, in essence, looking at um, the age ranges for which a vaccine is already uh, available. You can see that roughly about um, 60% of children of uh, parents uh, either have vaccinated or will vaccinate their parents in the near future, or are at least open to it. The 40% are not open to it. Um, and uh, then in those le- under five years of age, only about 20% are going to vaccinate right away. Uh, another f- almost 40% will take a wait and see approach with almost 40% uh, refusing to vaccinate. So, so that is concerning in terms, of, uh, in terms of whether we're actually going to be able to uh, roll out vaccine if these are indeed licensed or move forward to actual um, EUA. And at this point, I'll break and uh, Andy will uh, take over.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, Evan. So just a few uh, cases to highlight some of the points that uh, Evan made here are my disclosures. So um, here, these are some common cases and presentations that we have all seen uh, as pediatricians. Um, And I'm sure that many of you may have received uh, these same uh, questions I'll just say that uh, medicine is an art and not a science. And so um, while there are some recommendations for specific situations, just as with everything COVID and everything pandemic, uh, we are acutely aware that things are evolving. So uh, some of this information will be true today, but it may not be true uh, in, uh, in a few weeks. But the first case is an 11 year 11 months and 20 day old healthy COVID-19 unvaccinated female. She was SARS-CoV-2 positive with mild symptoms and it's now day five after symptom onset. And she's in your office and here are the questions. When should she receive her first vaccine dose? What dose should she receive for her first vaccine? And what dose should she receive for her second vaccine? So in terms of when should she receive her first vaccine dose, um, she's eligible when her isolation period has ended and her symptoms have resolved. Um, This is uh, day five, so technically her isolation uh, period has uh, ended. And um, what I would want to do is understand what mild symptoms are. Um, And oftentimes we do see some lingering symptoms in children um, with nasal congestion or, or rhinorrhea. Um, that may uh, not necessarily be a reason to defer vaccination. And uh, once again, taking care, taking advantage of a healthcare opportunity, um, it would be a discussion with the family. Uh, what dose should she receive for her first vaccine? Um, so this is really uh, this has been discussed quite a bit. But COVID-19 vaccine dosage is based on the age on the day of vaccination, not on the size or weight. That's a little bit different than pretty much everything else we do in pediatrics. Um, But for vaccines, this is uh, what we follow. So if she will be 11 years of age on the date of admission, if that's what you decide with the family, she should receive the orange Pfizer BioNTech formulation. And that's what's currently available for for this age range. Um, What dose should she receive for her second vaccine? Well, so if she'll be 12 years of age on the date of administration she should receive the purple cap or gray cap uh, Pfizer-BioNTech formulation. So um, the um, different formulations are um, quite challenging, but um, many uh, places that are administering them um, at the moment uh, go by the colors of the caps, which are on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine vials. And at the moment uh, for this age group, Pfizer is the only um, EUA uh, vaccine that is being offered. So uh, just really important if you're involved in administering vaccines to make sure that the appropriate vaccine uh, formulation is reconstituted with the appropriate amount of diluent and the appropriate amount of uh, vaccine is injected. Okay, case two, 15-year-old COVID-19 unvaccinated overweight male with poorly controlled reactive airway disease. Uh, Parents and siblings had respiratory symptoms one month ago. The patient was hospitalized and diagnosed with the rare condition that um, Evan spoke about, uh, MISC. Um, and then at that time he was SARS-CoV-2 PCR positive and antibody IgG positive. So the question is when should he receive his first vaccine dose? So um, there's lots of evidence to date suggesting that vaccine, vaccination against COVID-19 uh, is safe for children who have had multi-system inflammatory syndrome and does not appear to increase the risk for inflammation of the heart or other organs. Most clinicians, however, would defer vaccination to uh, greater than 90 days following the MIS-C diagnosis. Um, that is the current uh, recommendation. And uh, both from domestic and international studies, we're getting more and more evidence that there is uh, no uh, recurrence of MISD or no recurrence of inflammatory symptoms with vaccination after MISC. Also important as we are uh, facing different variants that uh, vaccination really is preventative against hospitalizations in children. Case three, nine-year-old COVID-19 unvaccinated male who is two years status post a living-related renal transplant So this is an immunocompromised child. When should he receive his first vaccine dose? How many doses should he receive? And what are the dosing intervals for his doses? So the previous two cases were immunocompetent children. So it gets a little more complicated with immunocompromised children. So when should he receive his first vaccine dose? And the answer really is as soon as possible. Uh, We do know that children who are immunocompromised are at risk for more severe. Uh, COVID-19, and so we really have made a tremendous effort to make sure that immunocompromised patients are vaccinated. Um, How many doses should he receive and what are the dosing intervals? So he should get a primary series, a two-dose series separated by at least three weeks, and uh, this would be, at the moment, uh, Pfizer vaccination. Then he should receive an additional primary dose, which we call the third dose, and this is for moderately and severely immunocompromised people. And that is administered at least four weeks after completion of the initial two-dose primary series. And then a booster dose. Um, So the first booster dose uh, should occur at least three months after the third dose, and a second booster dose at least four months after the first booster. So uh, quite a complicated series. Um, There's really some um, helpful guidance on the CDC website Um, And there's even a COVID-19 vaccine scheduler, which uh, you can input various components, including age and immunocompromised status to help with coming up with the uh, schedule for that particular patient. Case four, a 12-year-old female COVID-19 vaccinated with one dose uh, three months ago presents for a well-child encounter. She is also eligible, in addition to her second COVID-19 vaccine, to receive one dose of a meningococcal um, uh, MCV4 vaccine and her first dose of HPV vaccine and a Tdap vaccine. So we get this question quite frequently, and that is, can a COVID-19 vaccination be given at the same time as other vaccines? She's now here, currently age eligible for four vaccines. So which vaccine should she receive at this encounter? Um, And if she only wants to receive one vaccine today, and one vaccine for future encounters, how would you prioritize and on what schedule? So, once again, this is shared decision making and discussion with families, but she's age eligible to receive all the vaccines, including uh, her second dose of uh, COVID 19 vaccine. And then, if she wanted to only receive one dose, one vaccine today, and then one dose for future encounters, this is a personal decision, but I would just say that I would give her her second dose of COVID 19 vaccine followed by meningococcal, Tdap, and then her beginning her HPV uh, vaccine series. However, it's really important to note that there is no contraindication to receiving all vaccines simultaneously. Case five, a seven-year-old male, COVID-19 unvaccinated, no known COVID-19 infection. He had pathogen-negative myocarditis as a six-year-old, so one year ago, and was hospitalized times one week. This is actually quite common in children. We we see, uh, when we do see children who have myocarditis, it's a little bit of a frustrating diagnosis uh, to make uh, in terms of uh, which pathogen is associated as oftentimes uh, it's a late manifestation of a previous infection and we're not able to detect an organism. His annual cardiac evaluations have been unremarkable. And what would you advise regarding COVID-19 vaccination for this child? So, this is a little bit different from the uh, child who has myocarditis due to SARS-CoV-2, although the recommendation actually is the same. Um, and in June of 2021, the ACIP concluded that the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination uh, clearly outweighed the risks of myocarditis after vaccination, um, as Evan discussed in his presentation. Since it was unclear in this situation if the child's myocarditis was due to SARS-CoV-2, since it was during the pandemic period, or some other etiology, the recommendation would be to initiate a COVID-19 vaccine series. And then finally, a 12-year-old female, COVID-19 unvaccinated, COVID-19 positive in February of 2022. She's had three months of symptoms consistent with fatigue, inability to concentrate, and weight gain. She's also been diagnosed with uh, postural hypertension, a, a syndrome that's known as POTS, and her symptoms have not improved despite management. And so she comes to you and the parents ask, is there a role for COVID-19 vaccine in her management? And obviously the best way to prevent post-COVID conditions is to protect children from being infected in the first place, and that can be accomplished uh, with vaccination. Uh, People who are vaccinated but experience a breakthrough infection are less likely to have some of these post-COVID conditions. And then COVID-19 vaccination in people experiencing post-acute COVID-19 symptoms, such as this adolescent, um, may lessen or eliminate symptoms. And there's been a couple of mechanisms that have been proposed, including an antibody and T cell response that's induced by COVID-19 vaccination uh, could clear a lingering viral reservoir if the viral reservoir was responsible for the ongoing post-acute symptoms and then there's been some hypotheses that induction of cytokines uh, from vaccination could suppress any autoimmune reactions that may be occurring and contributing to the post-acute syndrome. So I will uh, stop here and turn it back over to Evan for the adult vaccination. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Andy. Uh, We will then shift over to adult COVID-19 vaccination and where do we stand? So these are uh, data through um, about a week ago, looking at uh, the percent of the US population that have received uh, vaccine and vaccine boosting. So you can see that uh, overall, over 257 million US individuals have received at least one dose of vaccine. About 2 thirds of the US population is fully vaccinated, and about one-third has been boosted. One of the big challenges with uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been the fact that we have seen emergence of multiple variants over the course of time. These, of course, go by the Greek letters. Uh, and you can see that from a genetic standpoint, uh, there has not been much conservation among the, um, the actual genotypes of these viral strains. So. Uh, beta was the first one that drew a lot of attention because of the fact that it uh, genetically was quite different than, uh, than the original strain. Of course, that did not end up circulating to a significant extent, but instead, we did see Delta beginning last summer and then through the fall. And almost in the opposite direction has been the emergence of Omicron with really very little shared uh, genetic. Uh, mutations in comparison to Delta. We've then seen additional variants emerging off of the uh, Omicron lineage. So uh, initially it was BA1, uh, and then we've seen uh, BA2 emerge, and now uh, uh, BA212. So uh, looking at uh, these genotyping data, which are data uh, from the US, You can see that um, with the initial Omicron surge, much of it was that BA1.1. And then beginning in February, we can see in pink here, significant surge in terms of BA2. And now, currently, uh, BA212 has become predominant just within the past week here in the US. So, does, does a booster dose make any impact? So, this is a study from Uh, Israel that had looked at the impact of a booster dose in comparison to to completion of the primary series. And although the cumulative risk of death is not large, um, you can see there's a dramatic decrease in terms of COVID-19 related mortality with use of a boost dose of vaccine. On the right here are data from England that look at uh, the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine on top, uh, and on the bottom, uh, Moderna vaccine. The light gray circles are Omicron, whereas the uh, dark uh, squares are Delta. What you can see is that there were declines over the course of time in terms of vaccine efficacy against Delta It then responded very well to a single uh, boost dose of vaccine with restoration of uh, protection against uh, Delta-related infection. Uh, In comparison with Omicron, we see much greater declines in terms of uh, vaccine efficacy approaching down towards no efficacy against uh, in- against infection, and this is important, this is just infection, it's not serious illness, but you do see restoration of protection with a single boost dose of, um, of um, uh, vaccine, either with Moderna or with Pfizer, um, And but still not at the same level of protection as we saw with the, um, with the Delta strain. In data from Israel here, this looks at then a use of a fourth dose of vaccine and compares it to a control group that had received uh, three doses of vaccine and those over 60 years of age. And you can see in terms of infection, symptomatic infection, hospitalization, severe COVID-19, and death, that um, the fourth dose of vaccine does provide additional protection against significant, uh, against COVID-19 infection and against the more severe outcomes, including death. And this is part of the reason that uh, vaccine was approved down to age 50 here in the US. Note that the absolute risk here is not large, um, but uh, but there is a statistically significant uh, difference in terms of those outcomes. So one of, the, um, one of the big questions that we're frequently getting is, OK, well, since there's been emergence of all these variants, how could we potentially use a variant vaccine to decrease the risk of um, variant breakthrough? So these were data that uh, we had generated on the left, and then Moderna had separately generated on the right. Um, and this was with use of a beta variant vaccine. There's very little data published about uh, Delta and Omicron variant vaccines. I think the key thing to recognize is that uh, here for beta and here for beta, um, with a single dose of beta vaccine uh, or with the original vaccine, you see a huge increase in antibody titer And here, when we compare it to the original uh, two-dose series, your antibody titers against beta are much higher than they were even with the two-dose series. Uh, Importantly, as well, is that uh, with dose of a beta vaccine, you actually saw a significant bump in terms of Omicron-related protection, um, related antibodies. And you can see that uh, the antibodies, and this is out at six or more months after the first two-dose series. Essentially, no one had detectable antibodies against Omicron. But then they do boost uh, with a single dose of, um, of original vaccine here. And then in the middle is beta vaccine, either as beta vaccine alone or as a bivalent vaccine. One of the curious things is that in addition to that boost increasing and broadening the protection against the different variants is that, and it may be hard to appreciate, but it was seen both in our study and then also in the study from Moderna, is that the declines in the antibody titers out at six months are much greater for those that received the original prototype vaccine while those that received a beta-variant vaccine maintained higher antibody titers um, against uh, both beta and also against delta in comparison. And that was seen in both studies. So it's a curious finding, and this is with the third dose being a beta vaccine. um, It's a curious finding that that is then kind of undergoing additional study as part of a larger NIH-funded study um, to evaluate can we broaden out the immune response against current and emerging uh, variants over the course of time with use of variant vaccine or a mixed dose of vaccine, uh, between either mixing between the variants or between variants and prototype vaccine. So that study is ongoing. It's anticipated that there'll be meetings during the summer to help or to discuss what uh, strategy should be used as far as uh, potential variant vaccine for the fall. I think importantly for this group um, is the fact that there's been a lot of discussion about the importance of rolling forward with a universal coronavirus vaccine. We've seen emergence of original SARS coronavirus in 2002 and 2003, and then MERS in 2012, and of course, uh, SARS-CoV-2, In 2019 2020, and in essence, the worry is that there will be additional emergence of new coronaviruses over the course of time. One would ideally have a pan coronavirus or universal coronavirus vaccine that uh, could be tested and evaluated such that. that uh, this could be available and ready uh, for potential emergence of new coronaviruses over the course of time. And there are a number of characteristics that one would ideally like to see as part of such a vaccine. And there are efforts to potentially fund and to move forward with this. This has been, I think, impacted by some of the congressional uh, defunding or lack of continued funding for uh, coronavirus research. So with that, um, I'll leave you with this. The search for a vaccine continues on. We've made tremendous progress, but uh, still have a ways to go. And I'll turn things over at this point.
0: Thank you so much, Drs. Anderson and Shane. Um, We're gonna turn it over to Dr. Horton in just a moment. And a quick reminder while he's getting his slides up that if you do have a question, please don't hesitate to write in the uh, chat or the Q&A feature, and we will do our best to answer all of them in real time. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Horton.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate it for letting me come in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about pregnancy and the COVID vaccination and updates that we've seen since originally um, presenting this discussion about a year ago. And mostly the, the theme of the document is, you know we'll talk about some data, but I also want to specifically talk about vaccine hesitancy because amongst all, um, all groups that are potentially considering pregnancy, the data still shows incredibly high rates of hesitancy for vaccination amongst those who are pregnant. And so for our um, for our general organization, well, if I can get my slides to get forward, um, so the American College of Bobby GYN, along with the Ameri- American uh, all of our organizations, the American Society for uh, Reproductive Medicine, well as maternal fetal medicine, our high-risk OB uh, group, encourages its members to enthusiastically recommend vaccination amongst patients. And the reason for this is, uh, this enthusiastic addition to the recommendation sentences, is that we continue to have increased information that shows that those who are pregnant and are not vaccinated, are more likely to, of course, more likely to both get COVID and have a in pregnancy They would have a more severe um, condition in of itself. They are more likely to be hospitalized. If hospitalized, a patient with COVID who is pregnant is more likely to be needing admission to the ICU. And if pregnant and COVID uh, positive uh, in the ICU is more likely to need intubation. So at every level, there is a significant increase in risk by being pregnant even in early first trimesters and being um, COVID positive. And so we continue to push for overall vaccination um, for all pregnant patients. This includes those um, not yet pregnant who are seeking pregnancy. And that's important for those who are currently considering or about to undergo vitro fertilization, um, uh, art um, and techniques that there is no contraindication um, to vaccination and overall similar to adults pregnancy itself does not alter the vaccination uh, series or schema they would have vaccination as per general recommendation for any adult so specifically specifically talk a little bit about hesitancy when we're talking to patients about i wanted to talk to why this exists And some of this is actually systemic that we have created even amongst our research community. Um, Systemic exclusion for pregnant patients from vaccination began in the 1950s. The FDA actually um, uh, mandated exclusions for vaccination research for those who were pregnant and uh, required separate arms to be created after safety data was found. This This exclusion was removed in 1996 However, there still remains a dearth of information when we begin to do vaccine research on on pregnancy itself because of this historic um, barrier blockade that uh, it it feels still more difficult to start off uh, pregnant patients in the vaccine studies themselves and even with major studies of our, current, of our current vaccine, there was a significant delay in adding pregnancy to the inclusion criteria for the vaccines. The two main questions of when, why patients have hesitancy are because of number one, there is a significant misunderstanding of how genetic material is utilized in vaccines. Specifically, when we start using the words mRNA or DNA or the carriers, like even discussing plasmids, there is, we need to open dialogue with the patient of why they're concerned. This is going to be one of the number one concerns that it may one, affect the pregnancy itself and two, it may affect the fetus itself on a genetic level. And so dispelling these myths and understanding them and helping explain how the vaccine works on a fundamental level, even with the use of mRNA or plasma material can significantly improve Vaccine uptake and decreased vaccine hesitancy. There's also a significant lack of understanding of disease risk versus vaccination risk. The risks of um, of risk of getting COVID uh, while pregnant and leading hospitalizations and poor outcome vastly outweighs any specific risk of the vaccination itself. Is a significant misnomer um, while discussing and should be specifically addressed that the reason why we recommend vaccination is not in this case um, to just add to population health and decrease um, the, patient's, uh, the patient's own severity of risk, but specific to the pregnancy, by getting vaccinated and decreasing the chance of getting COVID, decreasing the severity of the disease itself, they will improve, uh, possibly improve their pregnancy outcome itself. I always also go over, and I know these are these uh, VERS is uh, known to m- many on this line of lecture. But to specifically say that the VERS database looks at pregnancy outcomes in addition to the VERS CDC database on vaccine adverse effects. The VSafe is a uh, program by which patients who get the vaccine who are pregnant can enter themselves into the database and give outcome data directly. Um, Uh, directly to CDC. And as of last September, so just under a year ago, there were more than 5,000 different participants in the B-safe database. Um, Both of these, the last time we had um, some of the significant outcomes in uh, reporting was last September. There have been small updates, but there still have shown no significant adverse effects to getting vaccinated in pregnancy. Separately, the MamaVax vaccine specifically was looking at what is the effectiveness of the vaccine and potential for passing on antibodies to the fetus and to neonate? And that data has been published and showed that there is significant antibody that is passed along. Now, the database, the data on whether that those antibodies significantly decrease neonatal um, infection or outcomes has not yet been published, um, but it is being currently gathered. And in addition to VAERS and be safe um, adding to is the, v, uh, is the VSD, the Vaccine Safety Database, which utilizes nine different uh, healthcare centers that gives weekly counts of rates of the COVID vaccination in those patients who are pregnant. It gives information specific to miscarriage and stillbirth amongst those who receive the vaccine. And it looks for adverse outcomes in pregnancy, specifically pregnancy complications changes in birth outcome and infant outcomes up to the entire first year of life. And it should be noted that there has been specifically reported that vaccine does not increase the rate of miscarriage. It does not create and increase the risk of stillbirth. And since uh, talking about how this uh, data is constantly influxing, since I wrote this actual um, lecture, There was an article just published two days ago in JAMA that actually looked at the Canadian system, looking at over 96,000 different um, individuals who had been vaccinated and comparing pregnancy outcomes with those who were were pregnant and uh, did not receive uh, vaccine during their pregnancy and specifically uh, can say that there was no increased risk in postpartum hemorrhage, choroamnionitis, no difference in cesarean deliveries, there was no difference in neonatal intensive care unit admissions, and there was no difference in um, five minute APGAR scores. And so continued just waves of information that getting vaccinated does not harm um, or create adverse outcomes in pregnancy itself or those um, attempting to get pregnant, um, uh, attempting for conception, um, even in the in vitro fertilization and reproductive technology populations. But it, we do know that, and what should lead the conversation is that COVID 19 in pregnancy is significant. It does increase the severity of the disease, it increases the um, adverse outcomes in pregnancy. And so, by getting COVID vaccination, it possibly can improve those outcomes. Oh, side note: Just talking in general about vaccinations and um, hesitancy. Are there vaccinations not recommended in pregnancy? Yes, and they do have something in common. They are all live or live attenuated vaccines. However, there are exceptions even to this this category, most specifically being Tdap, which is EULA, which is the, the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, which is actually actively recommended and pushed. Um, in pregnancy to improve outcomes of both mom and neonate. And, there ha- and the question often comes up, is there any data on fetal development problems for vaccines in general? And why it's an interesting question is because there is a giant amount of data, even with live attenuated vaccines of moms who were pregnant at the time and got vaccinated with a live attenuated vaccine that then went on to carry a pregnancy. And with the exception of a small amount of data on the smallpox vaccine that showed some potential for fetal outcome differences and changes and adverse effects there have been no studies that showed adverse outcomes with any other vaccine ever given. And so leading with the improved sort of overall hesitancy about vaccines in general, is where we are in the state of obstetrics. Whether it is Tdap, whether it is flu, whether it is COVID-19, we're still amongst this discussion that we need to continue to push that vaccines not only can be, but are safe in pregnancy. Um, all those currently in use, even those used in, um, with current in East and West Africa with vaccination for Ebola have shown to improve overall population outcome, especially those who are pregnant. And so the question comes back to vaccine hesitancy um, and that should be specifically addressed when it comes to COVID vaccine in pregnant patients that it improves the life of a a caring parent and can actually decrease the chance of severe outcomes. It should be specifically discussed. Thank you.
0: Dr. Horton, thank you very much for that excellent presentation. Um, And thank you to our two other presenters, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Shane. Uh, Fantastic points that have been made all around. We do have a few minutes for some questions um, and some have come through. Uh, The first question I I did want to put out there is actually for Dr. Shane Um, and, you know, a a lot of people are concerned about parental vaccine hesitancy. Um, And so, you know, do you have any thoughts about how, you know, best practices to counteract that in your practice, given that a lot of what we're seeing can be projections um, from the caregivers themselves?
2: Uh, Sure, that's a a fabulous question and something that we try to deal with every day. And I think, you know, um, having vaccine hesitancy conversations really has to be targeted to the parent and the child um, and uh, together as a unit and also in some situations separately. And so really trying to understand what the root of that hesitancy is, is very helpful in helping the clinician structure their... Um, their discussion. And so some people respond very, very well to data. Some people respond well to other things, to stories, to um, emotions. And so trying to understand what the root of the hesitancy is, is very helpful. I will also say that I have been continually impressed at how much children and adolescents especially have been advocates for their own vaccination and actually have seen situations where adolescents have persuaded their parents to become vaccinated. And so I think that we not only need to target parents when there's parental um, hesitancy, but also taking advantage of our children and adolescents to help be advocates as well, both for themselves and for their friends.
0: Excellent points. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Horton, kind of um, along those similar similar lines, when you and I last spoke on this topic about a year ago, You know, the point was that ACOG was always all in, and I just want to make sure that's clear, right, that the stance in terms of of pregnant patients, immunocompromised patients really has not changed, and it seems to be even reinforced by some of the data clinically that you presented today.
3: You're correct. We It is no longer, so I'm hoping that we're no longer talking about whether somebody should get um, vaccinated, but how best for them to get vaccinated, how do we improve um, or decrease Pregnancy and or improve access and or when they get it but the we can all of the information that we get um, continues to say two things that one vaccination is safe in all stages of pregnancy and even pre-pregnancy for mm-hmm. conception, and two that being pregnant and getting COVID you will have a worse outcome so your best measure for protection is getting the vaccine itself to not only help prevent from uh, acquiring the disease itself, but also by decreasing the severity by getting vaccinated.
0: Excellent, excellent points. And, And just to follow up with that as well, you know, you mentioned during your talk that, yes, there are some vaccines that are not recommended during pregnancy. Do you find pointing that out and discussing that point specifically as a way of validating someone's vaccine hesitancy to be an effective approach?
3: It's a good point. I think it, so, I think if someone is showing hesitancy, letting them know that we do look at all vaccines specifically when it comes to safety, um, when with regard to pregnancy, and in general, all of the research and our recommendations are incredibly conservative. We start off from a place that I questioned of uh, this is not safe, and but where, um, and so, and then we prove to ourselves that it's safe, and over time we've shown that this uh, COVID vaccine. Is incredibly safe in pregnancy can actually help.
0: Thank you so much. Excellent points. Um, You know, our time is a little bit short. I'm going to have one more question, and I'm going to send this to Dr. Anderson, if I may. Um, I have a question for you that has come through, and that is, where do we see this all going? Do we see you know, vaccines and boosters being offered yearly? Do we see on the horizon a combination with other respiratory viruses? You know, As someone who's been deeply involved in this research, we're curious to know some of your thoughts perhaps.
1: Yeah, so um, I did uh, answer a few questions that have come up in the chat. Um, so you may wanna uh, take a look there for uh, answers to your questions if they weren't addressed uh, during the discussion. Um, It's a great question. Uh, One of the things that's been hardest to predict is uh, the future, not surprisingly. And uh, uh, we have, I think, been surprised by the development of uh, the extent to which we've seen development of variants and the speed at which those have developed and spread. Um, As such, uh, it does seem likely that there'll be some benefit to um, a Uh, administration of a boost dose of vaccine with some frequency. It's a little hard to know how frequent that will end up being. Um, But we do see waning of the immune response over the course of time. Um, There are multiple other uh, respiratory viruses for which it would be nice to have either improved vaccines or new vaccines, such as uh, RSV would be one for which we'd like to see a vaccine move forward. And influenza, we could certainly do much better than we currently are. So there uh, will be some questions about in uh, their ongoing studies of influenza mRNA vaccination and one could see um, in, on the horizon the potential of a combined COVID-19 and influenza uh, seasonal uh, vaccination uh, potentially in the future. And so I think that this uh, area will continue to evolve and change over the course of time, uh, but uh, I think we still have a ways to go before we'll see co-formulations happening. Thanks.
0: All right, thank you very much. As we are at the top of the hour, I think that will end our discussion for today. Incredible presentations. Thank you all so much to our returning expert panelists and to the audience for participating. Again, next week, we will be posting a recap and and responses to questions that we did not get to. Now, before we close, I would uh, like to, again, just pose a quick interactive question after participating in this session. If we could please pull that up on the screen. And that is a post session question. How knowledgeable do you feel now about the current guidance and evidence surrounding COVID-19 vaccines after having sat through this session? On a scale of not at all knowledgeable to extremely knowledgeable, if you could please vote now. All right, if we could have the results up on the screen, please. So it seems like we certainly improved to at least slightly knowledgeable. Um, so thank you very much for everyone for participating. Thank you to our technical team here at the SCDP Echo, specifically Yasmin Thornton, our Project Echo Coordinator and Leader Extraordinaire, our planning committee, including Sharon Venaresdale, Anish Meta, Alison Claybajar. Thank you so much to everyone for participating. Um, For feedback and future information, including continuing education credits and the recording, please check the links here and on our website. Our next session will be held in two weeks. We hope to see you again soon.